everyone. Welcome to GeoTrack. We have an exciting episode for you today with Jennifer Tisthammer, who serves as the Chief of Conservation for Miami-Dade County Parks Department, the third largest accredited municipal park system nationally, and the director of the Deering Estate, a public museum, historic site, and cultural and ecological field station located in Miami, Florida. Jennifer manages nine nature centers, attractions, and historic sites in Miami-Dade County, as well as guides the thought leadership on conservation and resiliency practices for Miami-Dade County. Jennifer has more than 25 years of experience in senior executive leadership, strategic planning, change management, and community engagement. She has a master's degree in environmental science and is pursuing her PhD in geography. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on GeoTrack. Well, thank you, Hal. I'm excited about this. Yeah, I'm really excited for this episode in part because uh, you're so multidimensional, you've done so much, you have so many insights, but also, you know, we've developed a personal friendship over the years as well. I lived in Miami in 2018 and the story of how we met, I think is one of my favorite. I think we have to, to tell this actually. <laughs> it was 2018, I was working with PBS NewsHour on a documentary about coastal flooding in South Florida. We came over to the Deering Estate where we did some recording by the Hurricane Andrew high watermark on a tree. And right after that, someone with the PBS team wanted to fly a drone to get some footage. I had already done my presentation. I was done and I was just kind of floating along with the crew. The PBS people needed some permissions to get a drone up. So I ended up with them in one of these buildings at Deering Estate. And I was just, I think, reading a book and just uh, killing some time. And all of a sudden, the doors to this room flew open. You came in, you looked at me and said, hey, okay, you're not the guy I thought you were. And I thought, wait, what is going on here? What is happening? And that's actually how we met in this moment of mistaken identity. Jennifer, do you want to pick up the story there? <laughs> so, you know, general policies and rules are that there, you know, there are no drones allowed at the Deering Estate. And there's actually a reason for it. One, we are an important birding area and drones actually disrupt some of the patterns, nesting patterns of, of the birds and can harm the birds in the area. The second thing is I've got five historic buildings on the property, some of which have irreplaceable historic glass. And if some unauthorized drone operator loses control of it, well then I lose a piece of a historic structure that I can't replace. And there is a gentleman in our community who shares a similar first name to you and a very similar sounding last name to you who frequently <laughs> torments us with drones. And I thought it was this gentleman again, asking for unauthorized <laughs> use of a drone at the Deering Estate. And boy, I was coming in with full on Norwegian guns plastered. My shield was showing, which I think you saw. And, and when I opened the door, you were not the person I thought you were. <laughs> All of those, all of, all of that energy was just completely disarmed. It was hilarious. And we did, we, we, we were then within like 10, 15 minutes talking about science on the back of your car, I think, which was right. hilarious. So, so you were thinking, we finally nabbed this guy. Like he, he's in this right. building, in this room right now. I'm going to get the, the drone guy. You thought it was me. You come kind of, I just remember the, remember the doors just flew open to that room. You looked at me and said, oh, you're not the guy. I thought, wait, what is happening here? But now I understand the backstory. Yes, and it's, it's horrible because it's a metal door, and so it's really heavy, and I did not realize my strengths at that time, but when I opened the door, it actually banged against the wall, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm just, you know, I come across as 
as just this very territorial crazy person, I'm sure, who is the director of the Deering Estate. And I had no idea if you were the other Hal, what I was actually going to do and say at that moment. But it, thank goodness it was completely disarmed. <laughs> yeah, it was quite the interesting introduction. You know, we became friends afterwards and here yeah. we are doing a podcast with GeoTrack a couple of years down yeah. the road. So Jennifer, I wanted to dig back into your past a little bit. It's very interesting to me uh, because a lot of people end up relocating or moving to South Florida, but you grew up there. And I remember you telling me stories about growing up, running around barefoot in the Everglades and these amazing adventures you had outdoors growing up as a kid in South Florida. What were some of these favorite places that you used to play in and, and have adventures in when you were growing up in that, in that area? So um, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, we're very fortunate in our community to have Everglades National Park and Biscayne National Park, as well as Big Cypress National Preserve right at the gateway of our community. And so, you know, my father had, had two girls growing up. We were tomboys, 100%. But our favorite things were um, sluice logging, hiking, hiking on any of the trails or non-trails in any parts of the Everglades and, and Big Cypress area, uh, water skiing on any of our inland lakes, canoeing, kayaking on any of our waterways. I, you know, sailed and even raised sailboats in, in Biscayne Bay. We were always snorkeling, fishing. Um, and yeah, I think, I think when I started getting into like middle school and, and, and high school, when I, you know, you get interested in boys, it's sort of like, well, I need to, I need to not wear flip-flops or go barefoot all the time. But great experiences just growing up in all aspects of our environment here. And I, I think too, that's led to me being able to, um, through my personal experiences, see the changes in our environment because I'm still very active, um, both hiking, bringing others into, you know, into these areas and also being an advocate um, in my role. And then just also as a, as a human growing up in South Florida. No, that's, that's fascinating. And it sounds like you were just learning as you were out there, kind of in the outdoor lab yeah. of, of mother nature. So how does your long-term perspective on landscapes in South Florida kind of impact your understanding of the area? I mean, you can look back and see multiple decades of change and, and just really understand how this has changed through time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as I've gone back and, and gotten, you know, and, and have pursued my studies in this area, it's really helped to add what I'll say is structure, thought, and depth to it and really put into perspective. So I've seen a lot that has changed in our Everglades because of use and invasive species. Um, I've seen a lot, and I'll kind of go broadly and then I'll, I'll go down a little bit. I've seen a lot that has changed as climate has, um, you know, our local weather patterns, both, both extreme and consistent and how climate has changed over time. So I've seen all of these, you know, very, very minute changes over time because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so active in, in our Everglades and our Bay environments, both personally and professionally. So like one example in the species standpoint is, I remember kind of just going into Southern and Northern Everglades and the wildlife species that you would see relatively frequently, even from the side of the road, you know, included deer, all kinds of, you know, your raptor birds, you, we, count, we count hawks, we count owls, we count types of hawks, 
you know, falcons, you count your different, you know, your different migratory and resident species. Um, marsh rabbits. Oh my gosh, I have not seen a marsh rabbit in Everglades National Park in any part of it in probably six to eight years. And a lot of that is, is probably due to our pythons in the area. And then, you know, when you talk about weather, how you were with me when we went out into Big Cypress National Preserve and parts of the Everglades a year and a half, even after Irma had hit, and all of the informal trails that, you know, I had kind of grown accustomed to over the last couple of years had changed and the canopy had changed. And, you know, you could and I was I remember pointing out some of the invasives that had gone into the areas but then also some of the native species that because the canopy opened up you know were, were, were transitioning and then one of the the biggest things I think that you know that I just recently kind of became very you know sort of hyper aware of is my father and I used to go explore in these caves that are along the Miami River Right. And and so like I have this fantastic photo of me, you know, five years old with my dad barefoot um, walking through the caves because I think in my next life I want to be a geologist and and just loved that exploration with him and just in general. And because our tides have have increased substantially, uh, particularly over the last couple of years, those caves are no longer accessible. And, and what was happening is I wanted to bring my son to have the same experience with me that I had with my dad growing up and, you know, that sense of wonderment. And so many of those things, that those memories have changed. You know, me as a parent showing my child what it was like growing up is very different, either how I remembered it or how I experienced it. But those are sort of the big ones. That's interesting. So, you know, you've shared a little bit about your personal experiences growing up in South Florida and some of these adventures you had and places you went. Uh, what about getting into professionally? I mean, you're, you're in a grad school now working on your doctorate. You've been involved quite a bit uh, of research at some of the sites that you've helped manage as well. What research have you been involved with and how does that relate to climate change and resiliency? So it's, a, it's actually a cool question. And I'm, I'm going to say like every, every PhD student, it, it, it evolves through time. But, um, you know, one of the things that I sort of began, gosh, now more than 10 years ago, even before I began my master's program, is I've been serving as the project manager and, and co-project manager on our archaeological investigations. And at first, the thought process was really just to document the archaeological sites here. And at the Deering Estate, we have 26 documented sites now. But what evolved through, you know, through that research was a super interesting migration story, is, is how I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it. And, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. We began the process to document the archaeological sites for a national and historic landmark. It became very important to document cultural existence here, almost from a, a voice and a social equity standpoint. You know, how do you elevate, elevate the voice of some of our extinct cultures here in, in this site? And what evolved is, is that because of their adaptations to climate, we're, we're beginning, it actually raised a few more questions about what is, what is the fate of Miami and, and how have past cultures sort of, you know, adapted to rising seas, changing habitats, and changing weather, both in a short term and a long term. 
So when you think about in the existence of the Earth and, and how we've evolved as, as, a, as a planet over a 4.6 billion year time period, the things that are most interesting to me are what we call these little micro time periods and looking at how weather and climate impacts a way of life and what our archaeological investigations have told us um, in South Florida. And we've had human habitation in, in Florida for about 15,000 years that's, that's documented is people move, migrated across North America looking for food, you know, food resources and, and places to, to establish themselves. They began to come into the South Florida area, and this is part of the investigations, and they, you know, established here at the Deering Estate for a number of reasons. There's some water resources here, there's some vegetation resources here. And then there's this gap in the record where while we're trying to figure out why the gap happened. And then all of a sudden, there is a, another sort of secondary migration that then begins to establish. And it's this gap in the migration records. Like, you know, the question is, why would people come into this area, feel the plentiful resources, leave the area for about a 1200 to 2000 year time period, come back down into, into the area, and then just continue going forward. And what we're finding out is, is information about paleoclimates, that there may have been intermittent sea level rises in our 15,000 year past. There may have been enormous ecological events that impacted food and shelter and you know, the ability to live here in, in Florida that forced different populations to migrate out of the area. But the other amazing thing is that that next wave that came in, um, they probably came in because Northern Florida was overpopulated. And so they, you know, they needed to come back down into South Florida. They actually, you know, during their time period began to re-engineer the Everglades. So, you know, they began to live with water um, very early on in, in Florida's history. And so when we sometimes think about the UN report coming out and, you know, the slowing now of the, of the, of the Gulf Stream and how that's going to impact, you know, micro and macro systems, I like to look at our first people and the stories that they tell as amazing stories of resilience and stories of, of what lessons we can learn. It also tells us stories about how, yes, living with water is one option, but that we need to begin to think about migration strategies. Jennifer, that's so fascinating. What I find particularly interesting is, you know, when you're looking back at these rapid changes in microclimate and seeing evidence that people adapted to this and made changes in how they lived and where they lived. In a sense, when you look back at that, does, it, does that give you, in a sense, more hope for us moving forward that, hey, people have adapted to this in the past that, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll find a way to successfully do this in the future as well? Absolutely. And, and even more than that, you know, how both of us, too, are very interested in how we communicate science, right? And so some of the messages that I hear in the world is, oh my gosh, you know, humans are the cause of 99.9% .9 of all of the, the climate issues that we are, you know, ecological and climate issues that we are dealing with today. Bad people, bad people, bad people. Well, okay, great. When you beat up someone for, 
just being very informal and off the cuff, but when you beat up someone and tell them that they're the root of all evil in the planet, it's really hard to get them to then turn around and help you. Right. Um, it's really a shame-based message, right? At that point, like right. you should feel bad for what you're doing right. and all this destruction you're causing, right? And then how do people move forward from that if they feel shamed? Right. And what I love about when we look at our historic past, it's a way of talking about how humans are the solutions to their own destiny. And the other aspect of this is that so much of our environmental messages are gloom and doom. And they, they kind of are gloom and doom. You know, it, it, we, we, do need to, we do need to change. We need to change as individuals. We need to change as smaller societies, larger societies. I, you know, I, I don't back away from any of that. But I, I'm forever the coach. And how do you give the motivational speech? And so one of the ways that you, you're the coach and you give the motivational speech is that you show them a success story. You show them, if you do this, this is a very, you know, this is a world we can, we can be a part of. And it's hard for most people to imagine a reality that they've not experienced. But through storytelling, narrative, and through the story, I'm going to say, of our first people, it gives this very real, this very human, and this very compelling story of survivability, migration, resilience, adaptation, and even engineering in the face of changing conditions. And I think that we can draw from that narrative in our science communication. So that's the, you know, that is the other aspect. And so, yeah, there's a certain element of hope, but there's also a certain element of strategy and narrative storytelling that's very effective in science communication that I think sometimes we get, we lose, we focus on data and we lose that human narrative. Yeah, and the location of Deering south of Miami there, you were just about in the crosshairs of the, the worst conditions in Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Mm -hmm. I know that the biggest storm surge was really close to there, around 17 feet. Yeah, and just some context for the listeners, Andrew was a relatively geographically small hurricane, but very intense. It was one of the only mm -hmm. uh, four category five hurricanes that have made landfall in the US. So sustained winds would have been at least 157 miles an hour. And I think the core of that was really right down there by Cutler Bay and Biscayne Bay, kind of south of uh, the core of Miami City. So obviously catastrophic damage from both the winds and the water there. So I would imagine you were living in Miami when Andrew struck. Were you personally affected by the storm? Yes, um, I, was, I was also on the northern eyewall, a little bit farther away from it, but in a townhouse, maybe 20 miles inland. You know, it's an interesting time period. I have very vivid images of the devastation in that area. At that time, I was working in banking. And so part of my job was to actually assess the damage for all of our trust assets. So, you know, that was also a different perspective because it brought me to all four corners of the county. And so I got to see sort of the least to the most extensive damage that went through and, and how that impacted people and the area. And then, of course, living here, I saw how some areas benefited. Um, and you hate to use that word in such a dev devastating event benefited from the reconstruction efforts because the infrastructure was poor in some areas. 
Um, and then you, you also saw how for a very long period of time, some areas became completely abandoned after Andrew and there was no reconstruction and rebuilding. And so you just had this loss of history. Sure. And you know, the hurricane history of South Florida is so interesting. The 1920s were very active. The 1940s and 50s were also very active. And then things got pretty quiet after Hurricane Betsy in 1965. The 70s, 80s, up to, you know, the early 90s were relatively quiet. And then in 1992, here comes Andrew. I mean, how did that change the psyche of people? I mean, you were, you know, grew up in this area in South Florida, and then all of a sudden Andrew just hits as a cat five. I mean, did that take a lot of people by surprise? And then like, how did that change perspective of risk from tropical cyclones? I think that it absolutely changed psyches. And, and I remember the weekend that Andrew hit and, and who I was with and, and what we were doing and, and how we perceived this Cat 5 barreling down upon us. And we're like, yeah, okay, you know, we've been through hurricanes before. I think for me, now that I am a first responder from an emergency management standpoint, to several of our park sites that we steward for the public, I have a much, I'm gonna say a much more thoughtful, systematic, and also rational approach to hurricanes. I take every single one of them very seriously. I, you know, I monitor every storm system that's coming, you know, even, even remotely in our area. And then I also care very deeply because I know firsthand the prep that needs to go into it and then the recovery that needs to happen, how this impacts others in our sister and brother communities. Yeah, Jennifer, something comes to mind. You stand out as one of the managers that I think is most prepared. I mean, I partner with communities from Florida to Texas and up the East Coast. And during a state and some of the work you've done, I've always been amazed by how you're prepared pre-season, but also some innovative ways that you've prepared like as a storm is offshore. Could you explain a little bit of that? I thought that was really interesting how you seem to have different ways to prepare like for the season itself and then getting into like, okay, now a hurricane is maybe potentially 72 hours away. You, you kind of have a playbook, it seems like you've scripted that's all, uh, very well thought out and that you're very much ahead of all all of these storms. Well, I, I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> there were, there's lots of thought people that go into it, but it, it, I'm going to try and make it as, as sort of simple as possible. There were a couple of things that we focused on, I'm going to say from a, from a, we call it like a time in charges, like how much time does it take to go from, this was the question we started with, from zero hurricane prep to a full cat five, okay? For us, it, it makes a difference because you can't just like board everything up for the entire summer because we've got to be open to the public, right? Okay. So that means the public's coming in, we're, we're running programs, we have summer camp here, you know, we got, we got lots of people on the estate. But it does take us 14 days if we work straight through with different crews to go from zero to a cat five, because we have storm surge panels that go up. We have, you know, we have our, our wind panels that go on the second and third floors. We've got to, you know, deal with water abatement. You know, we have park benches and, and amenities that are, you know, throughout the park for the visitor experience. Um, you know, we have equipment and stuff. And so we know in hurricane prep that when NOAA starts tracking it, we don't always have 14 days. So one of the number one things that we did is how we break down, okay guys, at the beginning of the season, we're going to be prepped for cat one or cat two 
starting first or second week of June. So like before even one is on the horizon, we've got, we've got a special type of hurricane panel that goes on our second floor and, you know, top off our equipment. We, we get everything ready. And that prep probably takes us the longest. It takes us about seven days to do that. Would that include like trimming trees, things like that? It's like, okay, exactly. do that yeah. annually. We're not going to wait till there's a name storm in nope. the Bahamas. And we're not going to wait until we're told we're not, you know, none of us. I mean, our prep actually begins back in March when we, when we start ordering supplies and begin to set the plan in. We begin the battening down of the hatches before anybody else in this community does um, so that we're prepped for it. Then, you know, then the next thing is when we're looking at a, at a category three, to a category five, we begin to do some of the other activities. And, and those things, as soon as we see sort of the, what I call the dance of the, of the tropical storms coming in one after another, we put up our shutters, but we, get, we begin to put them in place. We have these rails that go on the first floor that support our storm, storm surge. But basically what we're trying to do is to be able to go from a category two or three impact to a category five impact in about in about a 48 hour to 72 hour time frame scenario. It, it sounds like you're prepared for a cat one or cat two just because it's early June and that's what you yep. do every year but then you could ramp up to prepare yep. for a cat three to five in 48 to 72 hours but because you've done a lot of this stuff already mm -hmm. ahead of time makes it easier to jump up than to a three to five. Yeah and and the reason that we did that is I think it was about it was two years before Irma, so five, five years ago, five, six years ago, we started to observe more of the hurricanes forming in the Caribbean. You know, so like we used to, we all know watching the newscasters, they, they come, off of, come, come off of the African coast and we would watch them sort of meander. And as they got to the Caribbean islands, you know, they would, they would either dissipate or they would go above or below. And, you know, and there's some level of predictability with that. But what started to happen about five to six years ago, and this speaks to, to warming, warming oceans and, and different climate and weather impacts, they were forming much quicker, you know, with, with greater intensity. And so we really had to, in order to accomplish everything that we needed to accomplish in a shorter time period. And so it, it began looking at it with dedication. The other thing too, Hal, that I'll, I'll, I'm very clear about as a, business manager is that there are 60 people who help me run the Deering Estate. Those are people, those are humans. And as part of our preparation and recovery efforts, we put our employees and their families into our timeline so that we make sure that we've got enough of a buffer built into our own prep that we can encourage our employees to prepare for themselves. That I think is really important. And I would encourage all managers to look at their recovery plans also from a human lens. Yeah, that seems amazing to say, hey, you know, to your employees, we really care about you. We want you to have time to prepare before the storm. But then it seems like afterwards as well, following up with the recovery. And I think, uh, were you sharing, you know, post Irma, there was so much seaweed that 
washed up, but it almost seemed like the community came together there at Daring to kind of clean up together and be in one place and even eat and um, yeah. basically have a community place together that involved kind of restoring and cleaning up, but also just kind of coming together as well, right? Yeah, you're gonna laugh, but one, one of the things, cause you can't purchase, it's very difficult to purchase this one item through our county procurement system. So like all of the managers pitch in and we make sure we have powdered Gatorade on, I know it's like the silliest thing, but it is such an important part of the recovery effort to have those electrolytes. Oh yeah, especially, I mean, keep in mind for a lot of people, power's out for an extended amount of time, right? Yeah. They might not have air conditioning, whether they're out cleaning up or they're even just inside a hot building sweltering, right? We're sweating mm -hmm. a lot more, it, it's hot. Man, having a, a little bit of ice and some powdered Gatorade is like amazing uh, in, in that environment. So no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and while we can't guarantee the ice, I mean, in Irma, we did not have electricity on the estate for, for six to eight weeks. And yet we were still recovering during that time period. So we lose power like everyone else, but we do have access, we had we do have shade and we do have access to to the bay. And heat is a big issue. Um, and heat is going to become a, a bigger issue in our in our future. So that that is one of the things that we we also focus on is is hydration and heat as well. Odd as that you brought up a really good point. You know, I've spent a lot of weeks um, storm chasing and, and working with communities that are recovering from a storm. And just, I mean, almost inevitably, there's no power for an extended amount of time. So heat becomes this really serious thing where people could have heat stroke, people could be overheating. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, the concrete and the buildings and the urban landscape can really soak up this heat. And we don't notice it sometimes when we're in an air conditioned environment, but you take the air conditioning away, proximity to water, proximity to a beach, even just natural landscapes, right? I mean, vegetation has natural evaporative cooling. And so uh, just to be out there at a place like Deering Estate or be in a natural environment, you, you have natural cooling happening that can actually make, I would imagine, a really big difference with people recovering or, or dealing with heat-related stress. Yeah, you know, when we talk about sort of what are, the, what are some of the climate impacts that we're going to face in our future, our planet is becoming warmer. And so when we look at, you know, fires out west and then, you know, the, the urban heat island impact, heat also disproportionately impacts vulnerable populations, older populations, those with physical and mental health issues, you know, those in communities that don't have access to maybe green space or, or don't have, you know, trees planted um, in, as part of their, their zoning. Or, and so parks becomes an, an enormous, now this is my broader role than just the Daring Estate, parks becomes a great community asset in terms of providing solutions to our changing climate as it relates to heat going forward. And that's because our parks are built with shade structures. Our parks are open to the public. We put our parks in, in, in as many uh, locations as we can. We focus on green space in our parks and tree planting and adding to the urban tree canopy. And because our professionals within the parks are trained consistently and annually with certifications on how to deal with heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and general heat issues that happen because we're running sports programs, nature camps, and doing significant landscape. Living with heat is a very important part of, of our 
professional role. Yeah, and Jennifer, Miami's really on the cutting edge of this. I mean, I heard that Miami just named the nation's first heat officer. So I'd imagine this is part of this effort to really address this as a public health crisis. And, you know, what can we do to really mitigate the effects of uh, a warmer climate and really on people's health? Could you explain a little bit about those efforts and, and maybe even how having a heat officer could help with that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, yeah, very exciting. Miami has named Jane Gilbert as the interim heat officer, and it's part of a sort of citywide approach to to addressing the fact that, hey, we're getting warmer and we need to bring focus to this issue and, and really begin to plan for people around this particular issue. And so, so you begin with an analysis, you know, where do you, where do you have deficiencies in shade, which populations are most impacted, and then you begin to look at solutions and what are the most viable solutions to address this with broader groups. And a lot of the innovations um, and sort of, I'm gonna say the short-term short -term solutions to addressing heat in, in our communities come through parks, um, come through in increasing uh, green spaces, creating shade structures and shelter and community cooling spots for our community that doesn't necessarily have access to this in our, in our private residence. I like the focus too on how that works with parks. You know, as you mentioned, parks are such an important place. I'd imagine even the types of trees you have, right? Um, both mm -hmm. what can survive well in a warmer climate, but also mm -hmm. what are the different types of shade, you know, amount of shade provided by different trees or different, I, I'd imagine right. there are, you know, environmental type of discussions that are taking place in Miami to optimize just how parks look and how they function as well. Yeah, so it's funny because, you know, it's, so this is a goofy aside and, and I, I don't have anything against palm trees. You know, we have beautiful royal palms actually on the thing, but, but royal palms are like, meh, we can't put a royal palm, you know, we don't want to put a royal palm in. There's like no shade that's associated with it and it takes a lot of maintenance. <laughs> so, so yes, some trees have a little bit more favored status in this approach to shade than others. That's interesting. Um, Jennifer, any other thoughts on, you know, changes, environmental changes, um, adaptations to climate change? In some ways, South Florida and Miami really are on the cutting edge of some of the impacts we're seeing, but also from what you're saying with having a heat officer, and I know a lot of sea level rise and coastal flood projects are focused on what's happening in Miami. Do you have any other insights on changes, adaptations, lessons learned, success stories, things that we could take from Miami and South Florida and apply them more broadly? Not, I'm, I'm going to say not specifically and not technically. I think that, you know, on a, on a global perspective, we know many of the solutions that are going to get us to, you know, get us to the low carbon emissions and reduce methane and greenhouse gases, you know, on the planet. We've got all of those technical solutions in various forms at a community, national, country, a global level. I think what we lack and where we need to really focus on is how do we have these interdisciplinary dialogues and bring people together together in work groups to address these very specific issues and i think that miami i think miami is doing a really good job in this i think other places too are also doing a really good job on this. We're not, you know, we're not singled out. Miami will face a lot of these issues first 
because we are a peninsula and we're, I think it was said, we're like one of the world's number one most at risk to sea level rise and, and, and climate change. So we're going to go first into this and we're going to go fastest into this. And, and because of that, we're going to do some things right and we're going to do some things not so right. And so what I would say to others is please learn from us and, and as we move forward, Please let us let us let us implement um, as we're developing the strategies, uh, and and that does take dialogue. Jennifer, very last question: Is it true that Miami Vice opened up with a panoramic view of Deering Estate? Is that a is that a true statement? That is a true statement. The other thing is, is I believe that there are six episodes that were shot here, as well as. Are you ready for this? Bachelor Party 2, the one that went straight to DVD, not the one that, was, that had Tom Hanks in it, as well as the Luis Miguel videos and a couple of others. Yeah, we are, we are definitely part of the pop iconography here. Uh, was it true that you were seen kind of cruising around in a convertible with Don Johnson back in your executive days? Is this, I don't know if this is true. I've heard some rumors. Uh, is there any truth to that? I think that that is a hundred percent rumor. Although there might be a photo or two of me dancing next to Madonna in her house with her baby girl at the time. But, you know, that's, that's how Miami is. We're filled with celebrities. Hey, it's South Florida. You never know what's going to happen at any <laughs> given time. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. What an action-packed episode this was. You gave us perspective on how the landscape in South Florida has changed over multiple decades, shared insights on how to adapt to a changing environment that come from Native Americans and the first people who inhabited Florida thousands of years ago. You gave us a firsthand account of what it was like to go through Category 5 Hurricane Andrew in 1992, gave valuable tips on how to prepare for Category 1 through Category 5 hurricanes, as well as how to manage teams in disaster-prone areas. The last part of the podcast touched on the increasing impacts of extreme heat and how Miami is taking leadership to address this issue moving forward. If you have a suggestion for a podcast guest on GeoTrack, give us a shout. We're always interested to interview people around the world like Jennifer Tisthammer, who have profound insights on how to better prepare for extreme weather and disasters in their communities. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hurricane Hal Needham signing off. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. <laughs>